And let me invite you to turn in the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is on page 1180 of our Pew Bible. If you want to follow along there, page 1180, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Our passage this morning brings before us one of the greatest and most controversial questions the church wrestles with today. All Christians acknowledge that the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit must have implications for culture and society. And there can be no doubt that the gospel radically changes individuals, families, and communities. History itself clearly demonstrates this change. Wherever Christianity went, many changes followed. Religiously, human sacrifice came to an end, though it was practiced in many parts of the world. In fact, most sacrifices came to an end altogether. More practically, we might note that the age at which women got married rose wherever Christianity went because Christians put a stop to underage girls being married. In the 600s, a Frankish Christian queen, herself a former slave, banned slavery. Many followed her lead, and by the turn of the millennium, slavery was all but eliminated from Christendom, even when it was still practiced widely, even here in America, among native peoples. In May of 2012, Professor Robert Woodbury published an article in a major academic journal where he gave extensive proof for a thesis he knew would be unpopular. The journal published his findings only because he had so carefully studied them and demonstrated his research. Woodbury's thesis was stated this way, quote, this article demonstrates historically and statistically that conversionary Protestants, that is evangelical Protestant missionaries, heavily influenced the rise and spread of stable democracy around the world and that they were a crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, and colonial reforms, thereby, he says, creating the conditions that made stable democracy more likely. In 2016, historian and Baylor professor Rodney Stark published a book entitled Bearing False Witness, Debunking Centuries of Anti-Catholic History. Stark, himself not a Roman Catholic, nevertheless showed how the Roman Catholic Church openly resisted the transatlantic slave trade, even issuing papal statements threatening excommunication on anyone who trafficked in slaves. The popes were moved to do this by missionaries who were serving indigenous peoples. Stark documents how both Spain and Portugal outlawed the publishing of these papal statements in the New World. When priests tried to read them publicly, they faced assault and deportation from colonial authorities. Nevertheless, the Roman Catholic Church was able to help foster slave reforms and lead to more and more slaves going free. 
Stark shows how this can be clearly seen by looking at largely Roman Catholic New Orleans, where in 1830, almost half the black population was already free. Now, do not get me wrong. There are plenty of horror stories about unfaithful churches that supported oppression, and we need to know those stories. However, this is probably not the time and place to get into that in detail. My point here today is to simply say this, the gospel must change people, and in doing so, it will change families, and in doing that, it will change society. But how? What kind of change should we expect? Why didn't Paul call for the total abolition of all slavery? And how is the church supposed to respond to all this? What did it look like to have slaves and masters in the same congregation in Ephesus? These are our questions. Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is God's inerrant word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have willingly become his slaves and come under his yoke. For his slavery is love and joy and peace. And he is good to all. And he himself became a slave and a servant for our sakes. Now we pray through him that you would open our hearts to understand his word and that you would help us as a community today to struggle with these difficult matters. For we do pray and ask it all in his most holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his spiritual son. Timothy, although not an apostle himself, has been sent to the church at Ephesus with apostolic authority. The church in that great, great city has lost its way. In chapter 1, Paul condemns the false doctrine, or what he calls literally in Greek, the heterodoxy that is leading the church astray. In chapter 2, he advises Timothy on worship. False doctrine always leads to impure and false worship, and that was the case in Ephesus. In chapter 3, you might remember, he gives the qualifications for deacons and elders. And he basically says there, above everything else, deacons and elders must be above reproach. With the issues of the church at least partially addressed, Paul then devotes chapter 4 to Timothy, his character and his calling. Paul believes that much depends on Timothy's personal holiness and faithful teaching. In fact, Paul is not shy in that section to say that, quote, by persisting in these, you will save yourself and others, end quote. Finally, in chapter 5, as Paul often does at the end of his letters, he names some different groups of people 
in the church who are struggling and gives specific advice for them. Especially in chapter 5, he speaks to the widows and to the elders of the church. Our verses this morning clearly belong in chapter 5. And most Bibles, our Pew Bible, actually lays the text out that way. Your Bible may do this, where these first two verses of chapter 6 really are the ending of chapter 5. As Paul completes his look at individual groups in the church, he turns now to servants and masters and all that goes on with that. These verses bring up, of course, a huge number of questions and issues, and I will honestly not answer all those questions in one sermon. But I do hope to give you a clearer picture of Scripture's teaching on this important issue. To do that, I want to ask and answer three questions from our text. First of all, who are these people that Paul calls bond servants? Second, what does Paul want them to do? And lastly, why does he so urgently want them to do it? So who, what, and why? So let's begin with the who question. Who is Paul addressing when he writes, let all who are under the yoke as bond servants regard their own masters, and so forth. The word bondservant here can be translated simply as slave, but the ESV, I think wisely, has chosen the word bondservant because it better captures the complex situation of ancient slavery. In ancient times, slavery or bond service was not one thing as it was in Americans' history. Rather, bond service covered a whole range of experiences, as you can see in the Bible itself. So, for example, in the book of Exodus, you have harsh ethnic slavery. One ethnicity, the Egyptians, enslave and works another ethnicity, the Jews. And as was often true in pagan society, the Egyptians considered themselves entitled to even kill Jewish infants as part of their property. In this system, people cease to be people and really become objects, tools, and possessions only. However, in our Bible, you also have a very different picture of slavery given in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we're introduced to Abraham's great household in which there were many bond servants. Abraham gave the sacraments of circumcision and his other uh, sacrifices to all his household, including his servants. They worshiped with him, and one of them was even his heir for a very long time. Abraham sends another one of his servants to get a bride for his only son while carrying with him an enormous amount of jewelry and wealth. And more importantly, Abraham trusts that the Lord will speak in and through his servant to select a wife for Isaac. In a similar setting, Joseph is taken as a slave, but rises to a position of incredible power within his master's house. When his master's wife seeks to seduce him, he argues that he cannot hurt the man who has given him all power over his entire estate. In fact, says Joseph, the only thing my master has not given me authority over is you, his wife. So how can I do this great evil? Joseph goes on, of course, to become prime minister of Egypt. 
These brief examples help us to appreciate how hard our question really is. Who are these bond servants in verse 1? The reality is that slavery in the ancient world was very different than transatlantic New World slavery that we're familiar with today. In the ancient world of the Bible, slaves often could have other slaves. They had private property, and they could even have a stipend. They could hold numerous positions in society and in a household. They often bought themselves out of slavery, with one historian I looked at this week noting that about 50% of slaves in the ancient world were free by the age of 30. At times, slavery was a way of dealing with crippling poverty or debt, And for the most part, in the ancient world, it was not ethnic or based on skin color. Now, that being said, there were horrible slave colonies for prisoners and captives of war. There are examples of both the Egypt type of slavery, where the slave has no rights and even the firstborn son can be killed, and also the Genesis type where the slave is a cherished household member with wealth and rights of his or her own and is guaranteed liberty at a certain point. In short, slavery in Paul's day didn't so much represent one experience as it represented a whole class of people who were having very different experiences. Because Paul is writing slaves in the church, slaves who had the freedom then to attend church and to hear this letter read, it seems likely that he is not talking to those in brutal slavery in penal colonies. Rather, he's speaking to household servants who were tempted to mock and ignore their masters. So these were not slaves as we might think of them in America. On top of this, and very importantly here, remember Always remember that Paul is building on the law of God in the Old Testament. The law of God in the Old Testament clearly condemns, with the death penalty, the trafficking of slaves. In fact, you might recall in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul names a bunch of horrific sins that are very much, he says, against the law of God. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, including, I'm including, enslavers or human traffickers as those who are utterly condemned. The law of God in the Old Testament also made numerous provisions that guaranteed a servant's humanity. The Sabbath applied to them and gave them guaranteed rest. And every few years, they had to be released. It was expected that they would worship with the family and receive the sacraments of the covenant if desired. Numerous other laws existed to protect bond servants from the worst of abuses. In every case, servants were fully humanized in the Torah, the Old Testament. They were real people with rights and religious duties. They existed to glorify God and enjoy him forever, just like their masters. In fact, God repeatedly reminds Israel that they were once slaves themselves. All this provides critical background to these verses. These verses are not spoken into the air. They can't be cut out 
and pasted onto a billboard to shame Christians or flashed up on Twitter to accuse the Bible. These verses are part of a long conversation. And like all words, they need context. And all this comes back to our original first question. Who is Paul speaking about? To help answer that, the ESV has wisely chosen the word bondservant instead of slave because Paul is speaking to a whole class of people who occupy different roles and whose lives could be quite different from what we imagine today when we hear the word slave. This is not to say that being under the yoke of service was easy or pleasant or that Paul approved of all slavery, but it does help us to see our text clearly to answer the question, who were these people? Today, it's not unusual to be asked about the Bible's approach to slavery. Most people, especially I find young people, simply look up the word slavery in the Bible and sort of take off from there, not knowing just how complex the situation really was. Many others lacked the historical imagination or historical training to grasp how different life was then and how all this would have impacted Paul's advice in this section. And behind it all, the usual hubris we always imagine ourselves better than we really are, and we always imagine our ancestors as worse than they really were. But at one level, at one level, I'm glad, and you should be too, that people respond so strongly to the word slave because transatlantic slavery, race-based slavery, and the human trafficking that happens today are horrible, terrible realities. Had Paul been alive for slavery in the new world, he would have condemned it. And we don't have to go any further than chapter one of this letter to see that. For all our differences, and there are many, maybe even we Presbyterians can agree that Pope Paul was with the Apostle Paul when he wrote during the 1500s, that the emerging slave trade was, quote, a scheme of the devil designed to stop the spread of the gospel. Pope Paul knew that when Europeans, with their superior technology, arrived on the shores of distant nations, they had a choice. They could use their powers for good as neighbors, fulfilling God's command to love our neighbors, or they could see the nations as a payday, as a weaker people ready for exploitation. God had given the technology, as Pope Paul rightly said, to allow evangelization. Instead, all too often, Europeans saw the possibilities of exploitation. And yet, even then, praise God, there were some faithful voices in the mixed. But that is not the situation Paul is writing into in our text. I hope this gives you a clearer picture of who Paul has in mind. And that brings us to our second question. And I think the really the hardest question of this text. What is it that Paul wants these servants to do? What kind of transformation should we as Christians expect from the gospel? What kind of transformation is Paul expecting 
Well, verse 1 says that Christian servants are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor. And verse 2 adds, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better. In Ephesians chapter 6, writing to the same church, Paul makes similar statements, urging servants to, quote, do the will of God from the heart and warning masters to, quote, stop their threatening, knowing that God is their master and he will judge them without partiality. These same basic points are made again in Colossians 2, Titus 2, and other passages. But maybe the best summary, my favorite summary, and I think the clearest summary, comes in 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what Peter wrote. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorant, foolish people. Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So what does Paul want the bondservants and the masters to do? What does he want us all to do in our relationships? I think Peter grasps it perfectly and succinctly when he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And that's what this section of scripture is all about. Remember, chapter 5 began by telling you, telling us, that younger members in the church are to respect older members of the church. And then we're told about the honor that the faithful widows are to have. And then we're told about the honor and even double honor that elders are to have if they prove themselves to be faithful. Now, finally, at the end of this section, again, it's honor, honoring of masters or lords, honor everyone, love the brotherhood and fear God. That is what the Bible calls love and what the Bible calls transformation. And so rather, listen, rather than obliterate society, our faith transforms it and dignifies it. Let me explain. In most of Paul's letters, you've probably noticed this, in most of Paul's letters, there is a section that theologians call the household section. There's a German term for these sections. And don't worry, I'm not going to try and say it. <laughs> but there are, and theologians have seen them forever, all of these like household sections in Paul's letters. Usually near the end of his letter, Paul will run down the members of a normal household giving instructions. Children, obey your parents, honor them. Wives, honor your own husband. Servants, honor your masters. Masters, honor God who is your impartial judge. Now why does he do that so often? Why does Peter, a very different author, feel the need to do the exact same thing? For that matter, why did Jesus do it? Here's why. As the gospel took hold, 
as the gospel took hold, as the spirit was poured out, it became clear, as Paul says in Galatians 3, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, all are one in Christ. You had dads like Philip in the book of Acts. Here's a dad who had four daughters who could prophesy. Imagine what it was like to remind them to do chores around the house. You had servants who were sitting in the church speaking in tongues and were doing that beside their master in the same church, the same house. The last days had come, the spirit was being poured out, and it is true, a vital truth, that in Christ, spiritually, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. Paul is not saying, though, that we stop being male and female in the resurrection or even now. We know that because Jesus is himself a resurrected male, a real resurrection body. What he's saying is that spiritually we are all one in Christ. However, at the same time, Paul is so careful to oppose any kind of utopianism where society is overthrown in the here and now. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, listen to this, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a bondservant is now a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. Today, modern deconstructionist Christians hang their entire revolution and their revolution of the church and society on the one text in Galatians 3 and use it to justify the ordination of women, the end of all traditional norms for family and church. They love what they think they hear and what they think they found in Paul finally in one verse in Galatians and they want to remove and organize everything around it. No more genders, no male and female, no more roles, that whole thing about wives submitting to their husbands has to go. It's a way to appease society, to move forward with it. And egalitarianism sounds so good. Now, to be fair, some of them are just so sick and tired of all the abuses. They've seen men, I've seen men, so many times use these kind of passages to intimidate and mistreat their wives. They've seen children bullied into harsh obedience with these same passages. So they dream of a revolution and think they find a text for it in Galatians 3. But that one text cannot be used to silence dozens of other passages that clearly affirm the Bible's support for male leadership in the home, or the importance of honoring parents, or the need to obey the laws of the land, to pray for our president and vice president and all those who are in authority. In fact, this was exactly the kind of thing Paul was so careful to constantly oppose. 
And that is why he and the other apostles wrote so many household sections where they laid out a different agenda, not total deconstruction, but rather total transformation. He grounded the husband's authority in creation, not in oppression, but then radically for his day, credibly radically, he called husbands to adore their wives, to love them like Christ loved the church. He could set no higher standard, no more impossibly high standard. In Paul's day, you need to understand this. In Paul's day, loving one's wife was not the point of marriage. Wives were for bearing heirs. Loving one's wife was not that important, not even something the Romans and Greeks would have talked about. In fact, in the ancient world, men could not commit adultery against their wife. It was assumed that men would cheat and that that was normal. Only women could be punished for adultery in Gentile society. Wives then were for political, material, and sociological purposes. So when Paul told Christian men to turn to their wife and love her with their whole heart, he changed everything, but in a way far deeper than we might expect. We are not to destroy human society in some kind of utopian dream of progress. Rather, we're to bring every relationship to Christ and infuse it with the gospel. That being said, we should not pretend that Paul's teaching is a blank check for people in power. Children should not obey their parents if the parent is actively abusing them. A wife, and I've done this with women, a wife should go straight to her church, her family, and the magistrate and the police for protection when her husband becomes an abuser. Paul and the apostles refused to stop preaching the gospel even when they were threatened by those in law enforcement. So Paul makes this clear by regularly holding people in authority, including himself, to a higher standard than those in their care. And this dynamic is especially clear in Paul's teaching on slavery and bond servants. He required servants to love their masters, and he warned masters to do the same. Masters were to be acutely aware at every moment that their servant was a brother and that God was their master and judge. And when Christians started doing that, slavery disappeared from the Western world. It, dis it, it disappeared because we obeyed Peter. We sought to honor everyone, love the brotherhood and fear God. Once that heart change had taken place, the institution had so radically changed that ultimately it was abandoned. After all, unlike the role of parents and children or husbands and wives, the relationship of slavery was abnormal. It is not given in creation. Ancient slavery was abnormal at best. Even the very faithful kind that might have existed in Abraham's house. But again, Paul's solution was not violent or unrealistic. He knew that God's transformational power would make things right. Once servanthood met the gospel, it had to change. 
And eventually, to ensure love, it had to go away altogether. This is the power of Paul's message, not a message of deconstruction, but a message of total renovation. This is how love actually wins. I think this is incredibly important for us today. Many of our current major social movements are purely destructive and offer no real future for us or our children. They call for the abolition of all police and the closing of all prisons, and then those same cities descend into ruin and crime. We're told that the gender binary of man and woman must be overturned. But what comes in its place but a veritable rainbow reich as one hundreds and hundreds of genders demand acknowledgement and those who resist are mercilessly prosecuted and persecuted? Are we more free? Not at all. Instead of deconstruction, what we need, and Paul gives us, is reformation and renewal. We will always need police officers until Christ returns. I think most of us know that now. But what we need are officers transformed by the gospel, men and women who believe that God is their commander and he sees all and will judge all. We need cities where judges properly enforce laws and citizens honor those laws and the men and women who uphold them. We need husbands who know themselves to be the head of their home, but who are in wonder at that calling and deeply concerned to lead in sacrificial love and to honor their wife as an heir of glory. Our current revolutions are shallow and dangerous. They rearrange the pieces on the board, but they don't change the heart. New people take authority, but the deep problems are left unchanged. In fact, they often grow worse. The gospel offers a deeper healing, a more radical reformation than the ones we want. It says that men are not the main problem per se, nor is the gender binary. No, the problem is sin. New leaders will just become new sinners. The new oppression will replace the old oppression. But grace transforms from within, and such grace is operative here in these verses and throughout the New Testament. This is what Paul wants. This is what he envisions. This is the change he desires in all his household sections. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And that leads us to our last question. We've seen who Paul is talking to. We've seen what he's looking for, the kind of change he has in mind. Now, lastly, and maybe this is the most important question, why? Why does he want this? The end of verse 1 tells us, Paul writes, Do this so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The purpose of this reformation is nothing less than the glory of Almighty God. Or to use Jesus' first petition, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The restoration and renewal of the household and of society does not exist for man. 
It is not in the strictest sense a humanist movement or even a fully humanitarian effort. Now don't get me wrong, these adjectives are helpful. As Christians in the West, we do stand almost alone now in upholding the dignity of human life from conception to natural death, and that is humanitarian. However, Paul's instructions in these verses, and others like them, aim at something far greater. They point us to our true purpose and restore us to our whole selves and our society to its ultimate meaning, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or as Paul says in a similar passage in Titus, we must do this so that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This was the motivation of the world's greatest revolutions. Slavery ended not so much because people loved people. Yes, that happened. But primarily it ended because it was impossible for people to fully love God while practicing some form of slavery, no matter how regulated. And then when slavery came back, and not ancient slavery this time with its nuance, but the ugly and horrible slavery of the new world, the same argument won again. Martin Luther King did not say, the Bible is archaic, let's burn it. No, he held the Bible up, especially to Southern people, and said, you aren't living out your own faith. You've betrayed your ultimate calling. And he won. He won because he evoked the God of the Bible and demanded that he be glorified, not just by lips in church, but in lives, in bus stations, at lunch counters, and everywhere else. But to please do not get me wrong this morning. I'm not saying Christians are better than everyone else. We are sinners. Many Christians resisted these very same movements. In Ephesus, Paul is writing because there are bad things going on. In the letter to the Ephesians, he warns the masters of impending judgment. He does that for a reason. Let's not be naive. Christians didn't eradicate slavery twice because we are just naturally better than everyone else. No, there's a far deeper reason, the deepest reason you can imagine for why this happened not just once, but twice. It's because at the very heart of everything we love as Christians, everything we hold dear, there is a slave named Jesus Christ, who being rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor, who on the night he was betrayed, stripped himself and washed the disciples' feet, a service so degrading that the Jews outlawed it to protect servants from degradation. When that lies at the center of your heart, you seek a deeper revolution not just a reshuffling of the deck, a rearrangement of power, but a transformation as deep as it is wide. And so we rejoice in our king. We have a servant king, and he's not like any other master. And we are not like any other servants, for we offer ourselves willingly in the day of his power. He draws us with cords of love. And soon, if you know him, really know him, you will come to see, you must come to see, that the greatest injustice of our time, 
is not what you think it was. The thing that should cause us to weep is not so much racism or modern slavery or war. Those are indeed terrible things. But know the greatest injustice of our age is that my sweet, dear Jesus is not loved and worshipped, that he doesn't have the love he deserves, not from me, not from you, and not from our world. And this is the injustice that should animate our lives and drive us to distraction. And the moment that this injustice is healed, all the injustices of this world will fall away. This is the answer to our why question. We must live now as the heirs to this amazing future and with a deep hunger for the glory of Christ on earth. This glorious transformation, this renewal of Eden, is our answer to the endless violent deconstruction of our time. Amen. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you for our dear Lord Jesus Christ. How he transforms every relationship, heals every wound. He places his yoke upon us, and yet his yoke is not bondage. It's freedom, it's life, it's peace, it's joy. And how we long to see the whole world come to find rest in him and be delivered from the slavery of sin. We pray now, Father, that you would help us to long for that day and work for that day with all our heart, to care for those who in this life are being abused and enslaved, and to tell all people, both master and servant, of a servant Lord, a King of kings, who is beautiful beyond description, holy and righteous, and full of power to save. Turn our hearts to him, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.